Good evening, everyone. You're very welcome. Uh, my name is Abel Welsh, and I'm here from the one of the Royal Irish Academy committees, the committee in, in involved in tonight's event. I've written the name down, so I remember it. We've recently expanded. We're the Committee for the Studies of Languages, Literatures, Culture, and Communication. And I'm delighted to be involved in this evening's event. I've been asked, first of all, if you wouldn't mind turning off mobile phones. I'm watching you. I'm watching you, turning them off. OK. Can I leave mine on? Yeah. No. That's a joke. No, no. And uh, exits are, I assume, the way you came in, which I was also asked to say. So. Um, before I introduce our two speakers, uh, I'd like to call upon uh, the President of the Royal Irish Academy, Mary Daly, who's going to say a few words. Good evening, everyone. And it's probably just about not too late to say Happy New Year, but it's lovely. I think this is one of the first major events of 2017 in Academy House. So it's great to see you all here. Uh, and, you know, I'm looking forward to sitting in the front row. I have nothing much to do and letting <laughs> others take charge tonight uh, and uh, enjoying the conversation between Alan Hollingsworth and Carlo Gabler on Henry James, the battered technician. Uh, it's a discussion of Henry James as critic, not something that I would claim much knowledge of myself, I must confess, but uh, it's, you know, a, a, an interesting angle on the, on the great man. Um, this lecture has been organized very much by Ava, and I really want to compliment Ava on the wonderful, the outstanding job that, where is he? There he is, yeah. yeah, on the outstanding job that he has done with that. And it's part of the activities of the Academy Committee for the Study of Languages, Literature, Culture and Communications, which is chaired by Professor Dennis Kendi, who's there in the front row. And we want to acknowledge the support of UCC in this venture, and we're, we very much appreciate it. I also want to say that this is a great committee. I, I'm really struck. I, I don't deal with it on a any kind of a day-to-day -day basis. There are plenty of people who do all that. But I'm really struck by the fact that it has done some of the most interesting events in recent times. The Anne Enright event, I think, was spectacular. And the discourse of Shakespeare there uh, last, when it was November, was it early December, was, was, re was another stunning event. And what is great is that you are pulling in a really diverse and engaged younger audience. So my compliments to the committee and just keep up the good work. And tonight, as I said, is setting Academy for 2017 off on a really, really fine start. So well done. And I'll now hand over to the mastermind himself, Eva. Thank you, Mary. So it's my great pleasure to introduce our two speakers tonight, two writers who are going to engage uh, really in the very interesting question of a major writer, Henry James, and the relation between the creative mind and the critical mind. So uh, Alan Hollinghurst is the, uh, a novelist who has, um, <clears throat> his works include The Swimming Pool Library, uh, The Stranger's Child, his acclaimed novel The Folding Star was shortlisted for the Booker Prize for Fiction, and then his novel The Line of Beauty uh, won the 2004 Man Booker Prize. Carla Gabler is a novelist, a short story writer, made a number has made a number of documentary films written for radio for the stage and indeed for opera if that's correct yep. to say uh, he's there's worked, no end to my talent there's no end to his talents i i agree with that uh he also is member of estona uh, has 
teaches in creative writing in uh, Queens and Belfast in Trinity College and has written uh, and taught and uh, in uh, prison and where he's, uh, much of his work, uh, recent work, uh, has uh, inspired him, and also he's, he's a writer of memoir. So it's my great pleasure to introduce our two speakers tonight. Right. Thank you very much. Um, uh, somebody who's in this room asked me earlier how I felt today, and I said, I feel incredibly depressed. I haven't felt as depressed as I feel for a very long time. Uh, the President of the United States um, revealed, confessed that he, last night, that he believes in torture. Um, it works. He's 100% sure that it works. Uh, if you spent time in prison like me, you'll know that um, uh, that's uh, actually not true. And then this morning I heard Mrs. May, the Prime Minister of the Polity, where I live, I live in Northern Ireland, saying that she was... Uh, going off to America to rebuild the special relationship and that America and Britain had been the leaders of the free world and would be again. And you think, you cannot be the leaders of the free world if you believe in torture. So you're depressed. Then you come along here and you look at this beautiful audience who come out on this cold night to listen to two gentlemen talking about Henry James and you think, Actually, the world isn't in such a bad state. I mean, this is rather marvellous, isn't it, Henry James? They say that uh, no good deed goes unpunished. And that may be true in the world, but on Grub Street, what we say is no good deed goes unreported. I work in Trinity. My boss is a man called Ian Sanson. So I saw Ian on Tuesday, and he said, oh, I can't come, but you're going to meet Mr. Hollinghurst, aren't you, on Thursday night? And I said, I am. And Ian said, yes, I've had a tangential um, connection with him. I said, oh, tell me what that tangential connection was. He said, he probably doesn't remember this. He then proceeded to narrate how, to describe how Ian used to work in foils, bookshop, Charing Cross Road, and he decided to leave foils and become a reviewer. He decided to leave foils and get on to Grub Street. So he wrote these kind of round-robin letters, Dear Sir, Madam, Young Man, Bookish, Wishes to Review, Do You Have Any Outlets? And sent them to all the publications in London and England who might have given him work. He got one reply. It came with a slim volume of verse and a covering note, 800 words by Thursday, signed, Alan Hollinghurst. Well, Do you remember that fact? No. <laughs> no. That's absolutely fine. Um, anyway, you know the six degrees of separation thing? I thought that was a fantastic story. So Ian wanted me to say he would not be where he is, which is running the Oscar Wilde Center, had you not got him onto Grub Street by giving him right. that book to review. It was the first book that he got. Well, I'm terribly touched so, to hear that. There you go. Yeah, there was a reason for coming. Yeah. Um, we're here to talk about Henry James. I've read, Alan has read, quite not all of his criticism, but quite a lot of his criticism. Um, it's, 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 it's as monumental as his, as his prose, and probably as his plays, although I don't really know his plays very well. Writers, um, we like other writers, 
but we're also frightened of other writers. And um, when Henry James was starting, one of the biggest, if not the biggest, was Mr. Dickens. So let's start with Mr. Dickens and his complex relationship yes. with Mr. Dickens. Well, I thought it would be interesting to talk about James in this connection of, of thinking about writers. I, I think James is the first English language novelist who's both a great novelist and a great critic. Um, and it's part of the interest of all his work, I think, that this um, an intensely literary critical sense informs everything he does. He, he not only has uh, an extraordinary insight into human behavior, he also has an extraordinary insight into the form in which he's working, um, and which he thought, thought about in ways which hadn't been thought about before. Um, he was absolutely soaked, saturated in, in literature, and particularly in fiction. Um, the 3,000 words or so, uh, pages or so, of, of the two volumes like that of his collected literary criticism are almost entirely about the novel. Um, he wrote, he said that to him, poetry was emphatically a mystery. Uh, he, he wrote a, an absurd review of Leaves of Grass at the age of about 21, so totally failing to understand the very novel thing that uh, Whitman was doing. Um, I think the only other poets he wrote about were George Eliot, um, and, a, and Swinburne, a great Swinburne and Browning. Yeah. Um, generally in a disparaging mm -hmm. light, um, but everything else was to do with the novel. Um, he came from a, a literary family, and in his wonderful late volumes of autobiography, which are written in a fairly elaborate style, he um, he remembers. Uh, uh, the experience of waiting for the, uh, the new installments of Dickens's novel to arrive from England. Um, he, he recalls hiding when he was supposed to be sent to bed, hide, hiding behind a chair um, to hear the first installment of David Copperfield read, and his sobbing as he was so moved by the story, disclosing the fact that he was there and hadn't gone upstairs as he was meant to. Um, but James, later on, pursued a, an idea of the novel which was very, very different from the what he regarded as the sort of the, the ramshackle, spontaneous nature of the Dickens novel. He did too much for us, surely ever to leave us free, free of judgment, free of reaction, even should we care to be, which heaven forbid. He laid his hand on us in a way to undermine, as in no other case, the power of detached appraisement. We react against other productions of the general kind without liking them the less but we somehow liked Dickens the more for having forfeited half the claim to appreciation. The process belongs to the fact that criticism round about him is somehow futile and tasteless. His own taste is easily impugned, but he entered so early into the blood and bone of our intelligence that it always remained better than the taste of overhauling him. When I take him up today and find myself holding off, I simply stop. Not holding off, that is, but holding on, and from the very fear to do so, which sounds, I recognize, like perusal, like renewal of the scantest. I don't renew, I wouldn't renew for the world. Wouldn't, that is, with one's treasure so hoarded in the dusty chamber of youth, let in the intellectual air. Happy the house of life, 
in which such chambers still hold out, even with the draft of the intellect whistling through the passages. Um, they met once um, in 1867 when Dickens was on one of his uh, punishing, almost suicidally punishing, reading tours. And, and after dinner, um, Henry James was invited in. Um, and I thought I'd just read the, the occasion of that, that encounter. So that on the evening I speak of at Shady Hill, it was as a slim and shaken vessel of feeling that one stood there, of the feeling in the first place diffused, public and universal, and in the second place all unfathomably, undemonstrably, unassistedly, and as it were unrewardedly proper to oneself as an already groping and fumbling, already dreaming and yearning dabbler in the mystery, the creative, that of comedy, tragedy, evocation, representation, erect and concrete before us there as in sublimity of mastership. I saw the master, very striking that he should use the phrase by then long applied to himself. I saw the master, nothing could be more evident in the light of an intense emotion. And I trembled, I remember, in every limb, while at the same time, by a blessed fortune, emotion produced no luminous blur, but left him shining indeed, only shining with august particulars. But the offered inscrutable mask was the great thing, the extremely handsome face, the face of symmetry yet a formidable character, as I at once recognised, and which met my dumb homage with a straight inscrutability, a merciless military eye, I might have pronounced it, an automatic hardness in fine, which at once indicated to me, and in the most interesting way in the world, a kind of economy of apprehension. The confrontation was but of a moment. Our introduction, my companions and mine, once effected by an arrest in a doorway, nothing followed as it were or happened. But intense though the positive perception, there was an immensity more left to understand. Um, it strikes one that the reason for that piercing military look might have been that Charles Dickens knew that two years previously, Henry James had reviewed in The Nation Our Mutual Friend, a review which begins, Our Mutual Friend is to our perception the poorest of Mr. Dickens's works, and it is poor with the poverty not of momentary embarrassment, but of permanent exhaustion. It is wanting in inspiration. For the last 10 years, it has seemed to us that Mr. Dickens has been unmistakably forcing himself. Bleak House was forced, Little Dorrit was laboured. The present work is dug out as with a spade and pickaxe. Um, well, I think, I think I would have given someone who'd written that about me a fairly frosty reception. Yes, or he may simply not have noticed but him. He may not have known at all of it. Why do you think James was simultaneously so concerned, obsessed, enmeshed with critical rumination, etc., and the creative process simultaneously. I mean, you know, you, I, I, I agree with you, but I'm sitting here thinking, well, why didn't Flaubert, for example, follow that route? Yes. Um, why, well, would, why did it fall to James that he was the person who really uh, talked about what the function created our idea of what the novel should be now? I think it goes back to you, the James has had a... Uh, children had a very uh, peripatetic upbringing and they travelled a lot in Europe 
uh, Henry was uh, completely fluent at quite early age in French and Italian. Uh, when the Nation magazine was set up in 1865, he was one of the first people who reviewed for it, and they knew that he was someone who could write about European literature um, for them. And so the first 20 or 30 pieces that he wrote for the Nation are all reviews of books in French. Um, and that was um, a significant reach from the American scene into uh, a larger uh, and much more sort of complex evolved literary world in which he was already very um, interested. And I think one of the, I mean, part of the story of his, his life is sort of escaping, as it were, from, from what he often described as the poverty of the American scene, both um, literary and critical, um, into the, the, the riches of the, of mm. the European world. Um, there's a very fascinating book uh, that he wrote just after The Portrait of the Lady came out about Hawthorne, mm -hmm. which I think we've, we've both been reading from it. Um, and like a lot of uh, James's Christian, it is actually a masterpiece of sort of balanced views. Um, he sees that Hawthorne was writing with sort of no literary tradition, native literary tradition behind him. Um, he sees the parochialism and the, the provincialism of, of Hawthorne's world, but he also sees just what Hawthorne's genius was within that, that those those constraints, and so the book is both uh, a quite exacting act of criticism and a, a labour of affectionate mm. appreciation. Mm. Um, and I think it's that balance in him as a critic which is always so remarkable. Like you know, the the adoration of Dickens, which is at a, a level beyond criticism, and also the very acute sense of the things which he thinks are, are wrong with Dickens. Um, and it reminds me of other, another great critic, Samuel Johnson, uh, whom you find similarly torn in his reactions between um, a, a severe, um, severe judgments and impulsive and emotional reactions to mm. them. Uh, and that, that seems to be one of the great strengths of. I was incredibly criticism. struck by the way that James was simultaneously hypercritical and hypergenerous quite often in the same sentence. Yes. And that's a very, that, I mean, that's a way of protecting yourself from criticism. Um, the Hawthorne biography, Critical Study, which I would recommend to everybody, it's, it's, it's wonderful, um, has some, has all sorts of extraordinary things, but it has this long list of what America doesn't have. Yeah. Um, duchesses, country houses, <laughs> Um, old churches, wainscoting. I mean, the list is, it's, it's, it's very long. And that's, the, it was from that impoverishment that Hawthorne miraculously, spontaneously arose. And then, because he had arisen, was able then to become the father of American literature. And he's very emphatic, it's Hawthorne, not Twain. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. But I've often wondered whether his determination to be a critic was connected to the idea that he is emphatically not an American hick. He, he talks about American, the American character as being an ideal foundation for being a critic and being cultural practitioner, because Americans are so open-minded. And simultaneously, they have no culture at all, and you, you know, no duchesses, etc. And his way of establishing himself as a man of culture was not just to write novels, 
but was also to become the foremost. Um, well, he, it's, it's beyond being a critic. He was the kind of mediator between literature and the unwashed. He was explaining what books were and how they functioned and what they yes, should I think do. That's right. Yes. And I've always thought, yeah, that yes. is. It was from the American press that he was principally yeah. writing always. Um, and he, yes, he has some terrible passages about Edgar Allan Poe and the, the, the provincialism of his his criticism and the fatuity of his critical remark. Uh, but says, but, but Poe was a man of genius. Uh, he always allows genius, which, which may um, me mediate this. Uh, but the, the Hawthorne book was caused a, tr a tremendous scandal in America, where uh, and it was very severely criticised because it was thought that, that James was sort of poking fun at, at his um, and, you know, deriding his own background. Um, so it, it was very sort of sourly received mm. in in the States. One of the great things about the Hawthorne book, which is what makes, I think, uh, James so special, is that his understanding of process, his understanding of capacity and maturation as a writer is, you, you, is essential. You have to have grasped it. So he talks at length about the, the after um, Hawthorne finished studies, school, I'm not quite certain, he had sort of 12 years in seclusion when he wrote, I think, Seven American Tales, a book he subsequently burned because he couldn't find a publisher. And he kept these notebooks in which, uh, James says, he wrote these incredibly detailed accounts of completely pointless events. Yes. And I think but James it's not actually, worth describing. Yeah, yes. it's just, what, why bother, says James. And then simultaneously, he says, the act of making, of annotating, and the discipline of writing day after day prepared Hawthorne made, turned Hawthorne, fired, um, you know, tested his mettle and made him into the person that he was. And that's, a re that's quite an understanding to have. So everything that he, whenever he's talking about books, he's, his, uh, half of his brain is on the actual business of going and writing and think, generating. Yeah. And you've got to understand that. I think he's intensely engaged with that always. And, and he you know, will come back to this at the end of how, it, how James is a critic of his younger friend's work in old age. Um, but um, he, from the start, he has, he has a sense of what the potential, I mean, often, of course, he was reading and sometimes reviewing novels which were being published in installments. Um, I mean, it's very, a very interesting case, I think, is um, Daniel Deronda, which I think was a, a very, I mean, George Eliot loomed hugely for him in a way that um, Dickens didn't, um, as an example. Um, I made a little, a little summary of, of his. There's a magnificent edition of James's complete letters, which is now being uh, published, um, which is going to. I think we're now up to about volume nine. There are going to be 140 altogether. So I'm afraid I'm not going to live to see the uh, the, the late section, which particularly interests me. Um, but it does enable one to, to trace in unprecedented detail um, his reaction to uh, sort of liter the literary events around him. Um, and there's an interesting growth in his reaction to Daniel Deronda, which he was reading in monthly installments. Um, on February the 22nd, 1876, he writes from Paris to his sister Alice, of course you've read Daniel Deronda, and I hope you've enjoyed it a tenth as much as I. It was disappointing. <laughs> 
and it brings out strongly the, the defects of later growth of the author's style, but I enjoyed it more than anything of hers or any other novelist almost I've ever read. Partly for reading it in this beastly Paris and realizing the superiority of English culture and the English mind to the French. It's a, interesting, but the English richness of GE beggars everything else everywhere that one might compare with her. Two days later, a brief unsigned notice by him appeared in The Nation, uh, and he, he comments on how he, he thinks that um, the character of Gwendolyn is uh, an unpromising one, uh, that it, as a wedge, which is going to sort of drive into this narrative, she, she seems alarmingly thin. So he, he's very much writing with the practitioner's eye uh, and seeing, assessing what the potential of this story is, though he's only sort of read the first two installments of it. Um, then in a week or two later, none of you speak of Daniel Deronda, he writes to his mother, though you must be reading it. With what effect? It disappoints me as it goes on. The analyzing and sapience, to say nothing of the tortuosity of the style, are overdone. Gwendolyn, too, is too thin and mean for a rich, tragic interest. Um, it's this question which you and I were, were, were mentioning earlier about the fact that George Eliot is, as well as being a novelist, she wants to be a philosopher. Um, and uh, that she, the analyzing and sapience, that she, she goes into everything with. Uh, and she, she, there's a sort of essayistic dimension to the writing in Daniel Deronda. The action slows for pages while, while she gives a, a, a disquisition about something. And he obviously mistrusted that. He thought that lay outside the ideal province of, of the. Why novelist. do you think he mistrusted it? Um, he didn't. He didn't want to do it himself. I think. Um, and I think it, you know, it's his already emerging idea. This is the time when he's beginning to plan. Um, the portrait of a lady, which will be the, the huge turning point in his own career as a novelist, um, and re represents an immense sort of spreading of the wings beyond anything that he'd done before. Um, reading in the letters, he, he very rarely, maddeningly, says anything in detail about work in progress, um, but you could just tell he has the glow of someone who knows that, that he has really broken through. And, uh, and he says, don't worry about the reviews of some other story about wait until you see what I'm doing now. This is going to be the thing. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, he was absolutely right. But the, um, I mean, I think he was, he was fascinated by the Im immense sort of um, psychological penetration of, of George Eliot and uh, quite unprecedented detail of, of analysis in, in the sense of the, the analysis of psychology in her, her books, uh, which, you know, it seems to lead straight on to, to James in the Portrait of Lady as it leads on to Proust. Mm -hmm. um, so I think, again, you have this, this very ambivalent thing. You know. um, it was disappointing. It's the most thrilling thing I've ever read. Mm. Uh, and um, that, that engagement with just what the properties of a, a book are and how they're going to be deployed is absolutely integral. One of the things he talked a lot about, in, especially in a, an essay I think called The Art of Fiction, <clears throat> is disinterestedness. It's that in order to be a proper critic, you had to be what he called disinterested, which didn't mean not interested. It meant that you had to be wide and broad, and um, it was less a matter of passing uh, a value judgment and more that you were able to encompass the totality of the endeavor yes. and communicate that 
to the person you were talking to the book about. And that's a completely new way of doing criticism. I think it is, yeah. Because it, previously it was, this is good or this is bad, and here are the reasons. But his shtick was, this is good and this is bad, and here are some reasons for the former, here are some reasons for the latter, isn't this interesting, we might learn from. And what I'm curious to know is, do you think that that kind of impulse lasted? Not, not in his life, he stuck to it all his life, but has it changed us now? Well, um, yeah, well, I think, yes, his, his very serious um, evaluation, if you like, of, um, is a sort of critical habit which has become more, I mean, it's not just a question of the, the, the championing or dispraising review, but of, of this much more balanced and, as you say, broad picture of um, notion of what the, criti the critical process might be, um, something with much deeper responsibilities to, to the art of the novel. Uh, I think all his life he, he bemoaned the terrible poverty of literary criticism as a genre. Um, as I'm sure you, you, you know, in, in the middle of the first decade of the last century, um, James set about preparing the New York edition of his novels, and um, he revised them all um, with fascinating results, though in order, in order to try to attempt to bring them into line with his uh, later style and later views on the novel. Um, so it doesn't mean one should abandon uh, the search for the earlier editions as well. Um, but he wrote um, a famous series of prefaces uh, to all, all the books that he included in it. Um, and I think he, he saw these quite evidently as an attempt to uh, make up the terrible lack of critical um, consideration of a properly Jamesian yeah, kind variety. Um, yeah. in the, the history of his own work. Um, he felt he had never received proper, meaningful, intelligent criticism um, at, at, at the level that his work um, deserved. Uh, so he, in a way, he was he was writing the great reviews, which which he yeah. he never got. Yeah. Um, There's no rave like one's own rave. Absolutely not. Right. Um, he speaks about the. Um, he says, intimate appreciations of the novelist's craft are something for which, as I am well aware, ninety-nine readers in a hundred have no use whatever. Any act of reflection or discrimination on the part of a reader is a gratuity thrown in, a mere miraculous windfall. The artist may, of course, in wanton moods, dream of some paradise for art where the direct appeal to the intelligence might be legalized. For to such extravagances as, as these, his yearning mind can scarce hope ever completely to close itself. The most he can do is to remember that they are extravagances. Uh, so his expectations of of, uh, um, of a, a really evolved sort of critical reception were extremely uh, low, and it, you know, it, it's sadly you know, half a century on uh, a, a sort of re repetition of the the, um, the deploring of the poverty of the, the the literary critical scene in America, where which he'd come from. Yeah. Um, <coughs> 
But that essay, the art, the art of Fiction, which was actually a sort of response to a lecture about... By Walter Besant. By Walter Besant, not so much read nowadays. I don't think read at all, <laughs> frankly. Um, is, is a marvellous piece in which he, in a way, he seems to be answering a lot of the questions which a crea- someone running a creative writing course today would have to be yeah. um, dealing with. Um, and certain sort of J- Jamesian uh, preconceptions come, uh, or conceptions come through... Uh, the idea that um, the donne, the, the given subject of a book, um, is not the important thing, and you can like it or dislike it, and if you dislike it, you could ignore it. A question which often comes up for him in, the, with, in considering Zola, um, who, who he finds a, a brilliant writer writing about sort of d- disgusting subject matter. Um, the donne is not, not what matters, the treatment is everything. Um, and this, of course, will, will sort of feed in 20 years down the line into James's late books, which often have what at the time were considered rather uh, decadent or shocking subject matter to do with uh, adultery and so forth, um, but treated in this immensely ele- ele- elaborate and mm. sophisticated way. Um, and his great, he says, yes, of course, uh, if one's giving advice, right from experience, and experience only. But beyond that, he says, try to be one of the people on whom nothing is lost. Um, mm. And this sense of, of being an endlessly open observer and Which is re- also receiver. part of disinterestedness yeah, as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, um, the deepest quality of a work of art will always be the quality of the mind of its producer. Mm. Um, but, I mean, people used to use reviewing as a way of, well, conducting feuds, uh, advancing political opinion, etc., etc., etc. And what James did was to say, you cannot review the book that you wish had been written, cannot review the book that ought to have been written. You can only review the set of facts that you've been presented with, and you must judge it according to how well the facts are arranged by its own rules. And that is a really important change in the way we started to talk about culture. Um, He's also got this, which I love, he's got this, um, well, frankly, pugilistic (laughs) attitude towards um, popular culture, and particularly reviewing popular culture. He wrote uh, an essay, one of his sourest, called Criticism, which has this fantastic idea of the train. The train is the newspaper, is is the mass media. And they can't fill the seats, so they stuff it with dummies, and the dummies are reviews. And you, you watch them, you know, you watch the, the, the train full of dummies sort of sail past you. And all the way through his, I mean, it's a fantastic idea because you see the train full of dummies as you read it, which is a very, you don't often see images when you're reading criticism. And there's an, an enormous amount of that kind of material. We've referred to the, our mutual friend was dug out with a pickaxe and a spade. But that's just, I mean, he's mining, excavation, um, inundation, flooding, water. He has all these fantastically complicated analogies and metaphors and conceits mingled with judgment and 
opinion and everything. And it, 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 it makes the work really overpower. I mean, it is a force of nature. It's very unfair as well. But it is. It, it, were you struck by that kind of richness? Uh, absolutely, yes. No, that's not your fault, no. <laughs> uh, no, uh, very, very much so, yes. I mean, the, the, the flooding and the digging and uh, the pickaxes and everything are, again, part of, part of his conception always of how something has been written. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a particular sort of insight that he brings to it as a, as a practitioner himself. Um, and, you know, whether he writes beautifully about Turgenev, who was... I mean, it has to be said that, that James, almost as soon as he arrived um, as a young man in, in London by himself, um, and be, because his, his father was a, a well-known figure, and well-connected, no doubt, um, he almost immediately met everybody. Um, so, you know, in England he met... George Eliot, Tennyson, Browning, Matthew, Matthew Arnold, Ruskin. I mean, he, he knew everybody. In France, um, he met Flaubert, Zola, um, Turgenev. He, he became a, quite a close friend with, and he adored Turgenev, and writes very subtly and beautifully about him. Um, and about he contrasts him with a writer like Dickens, with the, the spontaneity and extravagance and fantastication of Dickens. Says Turgenev is exactly the opposite of that um, explosive, exuberant thing. He, he is the, the, the careful annotator, um, collector of observations, um, meticulous, um, with a absolute f fidelity to the real. Um, so, I mean, these are sort of brilliant insights into both both writers, I think. Did he... Um I mean, he knew George Eliot and wrote about George Eliot, although he didn't uh, sign his piece in The Nation. No, I mean, the, the culmination, of course, of just parenthetically, of the, of the Daniel Deronda vacillation is that um, when he finished reading Daniel Deronda, he wrote a, a piece about it, which is um, a dialogue between three people debating the book. Yeah. Uh, as, as there are these irresolvable, you know, it, it's... Um, it's implausibly sort of philosophical and ter turgid. Um, it, it's terribly moving and vivid. Uh, and that th these points of view are put, put by the different characters. So he actually dramatizes... Uh, his ambivalence. His ambivalence, yeah. Did he write about... So, so he wrote about great figures, Maupassant, yeah. Turgenev, and so forth. What was his engagement with um, more lowly literary practitioners or people that he knew? As a, as a critic, I think yeah. almost non-existent. I, I think he, um, you know, says he, ne he wasn't you know, an intimate friend of George Eliot. No. Um, and I think he never um, reviewed close friends, as far as I know. Right. Um, and I think he, he would just have had a natural sense of, of sort of delicacy about that. Um, I'm thinking about his famous letter to Mr. Walpole. But, yes, late in, late in life, um, James entered into a number of friendships with much younger writers, um, one, of, one of whom was a writer called Howard Sturgis, who no. was, who was a, a son of a, of a great um, friend of, of James's father, who was a, a leading um, banker. Howard Sturgis was a wealthy man who, who had this sort of gay coterie at his house, Queen's Acre, pronounced Quaker, um, on the edge of edge of Windsor Great Park, um, and he wrote a he wrote three novels. The third and biggest, most ambitious of them, is called Bell Chamber, 
Uh, and James was clearly slightly in love with, he was rather older than the other young men that, that James sort of flirted with in his late life, uh, but he was clearly rather in love with him. And, and there are several letters in which James says, you know, I could live with you, which is not something he ever said to anybody else. And I think he did have an, a notion of a sort of bachelorly household. Um, and when he was rather upsetting Sturgis with the, um, his remarks about Bell Chamber, he said, you know, uh, let us collaborate on a novel, which I think is one of the most fantastically unlikely ideas. <laughs> uh, but he, I think, rather shattered poor, poor Sturgis by, um, he, he sent the proofs and sort of responded. This is the proofs of Bell Chamber. The, the proofs of Bell Chamber. Okay, so this all goes on very nicely. And he wants to be nice to his adored friend, but he can't help himself. Uh, he weighs in more and more crushingly with his objections to almost every aspect of the book. Um, this is where we've taken our little title from. I'm a bad person, really, to expose fictitious work to. I, as a battered producer and technician myself, have long since inevitably ceased to read with naivete. I can only read critically, constructively, reconstructively, writing the thing over, if I can swallow it at all, my way, and looking at it, so to speak, from within. Um, I think by this stage, James, James had developed his own sort of dogma about um, how the novel should, should be written, which was something that he brought to a high finish in the, his last three big novels. Uh, something he called the scenic method, which was was based on the um, more on the idea of the the theatre, uh, where the the action is essentially dramatic and pre presented in a series of scenes in which the, the point of view is always determiningly important. Um, and he got very involved in, in what he he called a deep breathing economy that there was nothing superfluous in the novel. Um, it was the antithesis of the uh, the baggy monster of uh, of Tolstoy or Thackeray, which he deplores elsewhere. Um, it, it was the su supremely controlled work of art. Um, so anybody showing him this rambling, picaresque novel of um, English upper class life um, was really showing it to the wrong person, mm -hmm. um, and um, he was he couldn't help but see the thing, as he says there, um, reconstructively. He imagined how he would have written it. Rather, I mean, and it's an interesting change, this, rather than entering empathetically into uh, the, the situation of the person who actually had written it. And various people complained about this. And Edith, Edith Wharton, too, sort of came off. I can't remember what the book was, but, but he, he gave her a, a very severe view of one of her own novels. Uh, and, she, and she complained, you know, that people who didn't uh, prepare their books according to Henry James's recipe were not likely to find favour with him in old age. Mm -hmm. um, and I think he found reading sort of contemporary work almost impossible in his later mm -hmm. later life. Um, a much younger friend was was Hugh Walpole, who, who was a prolific novelist in his early life. Um, he was clearly rather in love with with Hugh Walpole. Uh, Walpole clearly adored. The master was also sort of paralysed with boredom by his. Um, he, said, he, said, he, was some, he, he was mesmerised by him, and he was sometimes so bored that he got pins and needles in his leg. <laughs> uh, yeah. And he had said, you know, at the age of 23 or something, Walpole had set, sent him his sixth novel or whatever it was. Um, 
called Meredith at 40. Um, this is just an extract from James's letter to um, young Hugh Walpole, May the 13th, 1910. Um, I read, in a manner, Meredith, but there's too much to say about it, and even my weakness doesn't alter me from the grim and battered old critical critic. No other such creature among all the reviewers do I meanwhile behold. Your book has a great sense and love of life, but seems to me very nearly as irreflectively juvenile as the Trojans, his previous book, and to have the prime defect of your having gone into a subject, i.e. the marital, sexual, bedroom relations of M and his wife and the literary man and his wife, since these are the key to the whole situation, which have to be tackled and faced to mean anything. You don't tackle and face them. You can't. Also, the whole thing is a monument to the abuse of voluminous dialogue, the absence of a plan of composition, alternation, distribution, structure, and other phases of presentation than the dialogue. So that line, the only thing I value in fiction, etc., is replaced by a vast, formless feather beddiness, billows on which one sinks and is lost. And yet it's all so lovable, though not so written. It isn't written at all, darling Hugh. <laughs> yeah, how would you like to have received that? Um, we've been talking for 50 minutes. We. Have we? Yeah. Oh. Shall we? I'll ask you one more question then, right. before we ask if the audience have any questions. His essay on Maupassant, which I like very much, is very... He's very good on Maupassant's um, virtues. And Maupassant's a writer who is not really, in any sense, like no, James no, no, at all. No. You can see why James would like Tegenev and Flaubert. But Maupassant, that's quite a stretch. But he, know, he understands Maupassant's terseness, his concentration on smell, his vis visceral authority, physicality, yeah. and all of those sorts of things. Yes. So that's part of this breadth, this disinterestedness. Yeah. But I also wondered whether you thought, in the case of Maupassant and also in the case of other writers, James prepares the world to look at them in a certain way. He, he says, here are the glasses to see them properly. Because people thought Maupassant was sort of, I don't know, just wrote about nasty things like venereal disease, and it was all very yucky. Yeah. And although he did write about venereal disease, it wasn't simply yucky. Yes. And he sort of put on the, made people put on these spectacles and look at them, look at this writer anew. Do you think he saw that as his duty to prepare the ground for the reception of writers who were not, who were still outliers? Yes, I think. I'm sure he did, yes. Um, I mean, I don't know how sort of programmatic it was, but right. I, th I think it would have, would have been a deep instinct in him, certainly, to, to do so. I mean, he, he, he did, you know, I, I've said how in later, later life, you know, read, reading contemporary work became impossible for him. Um, but he, he was actually an amazingly Catholic reader. Mm. Um, and, you know, he, he can see the virtues in, in writers widely dissimilar from himself, mm. uh, and he wants to do justice to them. I mean, he has a thrillingly open sense of, um, of 
the possibilities of the novel. I mean, I ought to, if, I, if there's time, just to read that thing from the end of the, the art of fiction, which is just a sort of encomium to the novel. Um, the novel's freedom. This freedom is a splendid privilege, and the first lesson of the young novelist is to learn to be worthy of it. Enjoy it as it deserves, I should say to him. Take possession of it. Explore it to its utmost extent. Publish it. Rejoice in it. All life belongs to you. And do not listen either to those who would shut you up into corners of it and tell you it is only here and there that art inhabits. Or to those who would persuade you that this heavenly messenger wings her way outside of life altogether, breathing a superfine air and turning away her head from the truth of things. There is no impression of life, no manner of seeing it and feeling it, to which the plan of the novelist may not offer you a place. You have only to remember that talents so dissimilar as those of Alexandre Dumas, Jane Austen, Charles Dickens and Gustave Flaubert have worked in this field with equal glory. Mm. Um, it's a very sort of rousing and moving mm. sen sense of the immense sort of Catholic potential of the novel. Do, do you like him? Do you like him as a critic? James? Yeah. Yes, enormously. Yeah. And, and what has he done for you, personally, <coughs> when you think about him? How has he enriched you? I think in so, so many ways I would find it hard to... Or a way. <laughs> um, I think he sort of entered into my system um, afresh after I'd been a sort of rather dutiful... Um, James here as a student and so on. But I came back to him, I suppose, about sort of 15 or 20 years ago and um, found that he just sort of went, went right into me. You know. You're uh, talking about the criticism I'm talking and about, the novels? About his entire sort of persona, really. And why was um, it that he went into you? I think it, years well, ago? I think it's just um, absolutely extraordinary intelligence. Um, and I feel this even about, you know, uh, about many different kinds of. Writer that writers that one doesn't necessarily um, dream of actually imitating, but one's inspired by the fineness and penetration of their intelligence. And James just seems to be one of the most intelligent novelists. And is this intelligence harnessed to the understanding of the world or the understanding of personality? I think it's um, harnessed to to both. I mean, as we were saying. And, uh, Someone who combines such um, penetrating insight into life and into, um, I mean, his understanding of life was amazingly sort of deep and complex, I think, mm -hmm. as, a, as a novelist. Um, and that can only sort of um, in, enrich the, the criticism too, uh, which is never sort of cut off from life. You know. yeah. The other thing before we take questions from the floor is um, some of his criticism is funny. Trust me, you laugh. Really. Do any of you have any questions? Yes. Oh, no, wait a second. There's a microphone coming. We're very up to date. Uh, well, um, James, do you think James as the critic was sitting on the shoulders of James, the novelist, as he was writing, and did that help to progress? I think I think the things are, are absolutely sort of integral to each other. Yes, I mean I, I think you know he developed very early on a, a very sophisticated literary, literary critical mind, 
Um, and as he was someone who was going to become increasingly interested in the theory of fiction, I mean, not in a, a sort of dry, dryly dreary way, but uh, as, as something co constructive, um, I think I think it f sort of fed his novel writing practice, you know, very, very deeply. Um, and the experiments that he made, and the um, both the enlargements and refinements of uh, simultaneously of, of the novel, um, I think, yeah draw very much from his thinking about these critical questions the whole the whole time. And, and the prefaces are really his great explanation of all this because they combine um, autobiography, um, accounts of the actual writings of the book, which are sometimes extremely fa fascinating and beautiful, um, and um, explanations of how he sees the books working and confessions of how um, the books actually fall short of the perf perfection which he was uh, uh, of his plans and theories. Um, they are, in a way, you know, I was saying they were the great reviews he, he never had, and they are, um, in a sense, boastful. Um, but they're also rather humble, as he, he talks about the wings of the dove and says how that the, the exposition of the first half of the book is far too protracted and it means that the second half of the book has to be rushed. And he, he's aware now of all sorts of terrible bodges by which he tries to conceal the fact that the proportions of the book are not right, um, so, you know, which is something of extraordinary candor for a writer of that eminence to say. You wouldn't get many people saying about one of their great masterpieces, actually, I sort of messed it up. Um, so, you know, it's... Um, the critical thing is, is very unsparing um, and un unresting. I think the other thing you get from the stuff is he was alert to things that one feels nobody else was alert to. So in the essay on the art of criticism, he has this little bit where he talks about how painting can be taught to people, providing they have a bit of talent. And then he says, and you know, you could... Yes, you could help people to learn to write, although that's much more difficult because the problem with, with, with the work of literary fiction is that everyone is different. It, well, unless it's pastiche. Each time you're forging anew, you're making anew, you're creating a new world with a new set of values. And uh, that was written in, what, 18, 1880? Is that in... In the art of fiction. 1884. 1884. Nobody was thinking these sorts of things. But if you work in universities, like I do, you think, I mean, absolutely. And he was there a hundred years before. Nobody was thinking no, about no, these no, sorts no, of exactly. things. Yeah. Um, I mean, his, 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 I mean, and that is intelligence. I mean, the brain, yeah. his brain really was colossal. Yeah. Yes. I think he <laughs> I'll let you answer that question, sir. I, th I think he would have written about it extremely entertainingly. Uh, uh, but I think he would have been... You know, the idea of, of, of a writing programme is so remote from anything which existed in James's day. Um, but I think, you know, in those things we were quoting from The Art of Fiction, where, where he's sort of talking about things that young writers should try to do and the, you know, how they should extend their reach. Yeah. Yes. 
he, he was full of contradictions. Yeah. Um, I think uh, you know this is this yeah. is where the vitality of of his of him as a critic resides. You know, it's in, it's in this constant sort of oscillation between between different uh, different views. Well, it's a hazard, of course, yes. of the writing program. Yes. Um, but uh, the, lear the learning of a, the learning of a of a of a craft, or yes. yes, but it, it probably was you know fairly the same. To, if, if you going, looked at the list, we have then. to give you a microphone because I can. <laughs> Are you sure? <laughs> right. I think James would probably, as long as they weren't too, as long as the, the the as long as commerce and Philistinism wasn't too manifest. I think he probably would have been quite keen on yes. creative writing in the academy. Yes. Um, and he would have seen an opportunity as well for himself. Because <laughs> that's the other thing. He's very frank about um, the relationship between being a writer and earning money. No. He doesn't make any bones about it. I mean, he wrote the prefaces to go with the collected edition in order to, well, in order to put his work before the public, but also to make some money. He thought it, he thought the New York edition would be, would be a big money spinner, and it, <laughs> it, it sold sort of something like 30 copies in the first year. I mean, it, it was commercially a disaster. Yeah, and then he wrote to his yeah. friend Perry saying that he was on, uh, talk, complaining about his unsaleability. Yes. Yes. Oh, James did not actually have an ins a strong instinct for the marketplace, and of course he he was. Um, governed for years by the idea that he could make his fortune as a dramatist. Uh, and it's a very fascinating thing that someone as extraordinarily intelligent and perceptive as James sort of had so little a, a sense of the deficiencies of his own dra dramatic work. Yeah. Um, so that, that was a dream which never came. And it was, I mean, it was really the, the failure of um, and the, the terrible crisis of his play Guy Donville when he was booed on stage on the first night, um, which led to his sort of withdrawal into the the world of, of the late novels and so on. Yeah. So, I mean, it was a good thing in a way that he had that painful lesson. Yes. Um, it would have been better if he had learned it a different way, though. <laughs> yes, it would. Um, well, uh, can I hear, you? Who'll go first? Ladies first. I get the mic. Wait, now, people, Catherine, we've got to give you a microphone. People down the back. Yeah. Nice and loud. What, what do you think he would have made of Colm Tobin's The Master? <laughs> <laughs> I think he would have been... Um, Pretty upset about it. Mm. Um, James had a very strong, strongly protective sense of his own private life, um, uh, as you know, Colm obviously. Um, I mean, that's you know, largely what the book's about. Um, so, any assault on, you know, on uh, that, that privacy, I, th I think, it would would have um, alarmed him deeply. Um, it's very fascinating the sort of cat and mouse thing in James's later life, um, these sort of greater freedoms that he allowed himself in his relations with a series of young men. Um, the idea that there were new ways of reading coming into being, you know, influenced by psychoanalysis and so forth, um, I feel must have some relationship to the increasing sort of veil, the veiled obscurity of, of the manner of his late work, in which he, he's often dealing with sort of sexually shock, shocking subjects. Um, I think um, you know, 
there's the famous bomb bonfire that he he had towards the end of his life, several days of just taking out papers from Lamb House and, and bur burning them in the garden. Um, so that if you read the Edith Wharton and Henry James correspondence, it's actually just the, the letters of Henry James to Edith Wharton, uh, because you know, mandingly he destroyed all of her. Um, so um, I think he felt the threat of... of um, Exposure. Of exposure of something, yes. Yeah. Quite what it was, it's hard to say. Um, sort of closing in on him later in life. Um, and took what steps he could to avoid it. Um, he also, you know, the, these two volumes of, um, of what we now call autobiographies, um, A Small Boy and Others and Notes of a Son and Brother, were uh, undertaken as a, a presentation of his brother William James's uh, letters after, after he died. Um, and um, but James became so interested in re exploring the scene of their mutual childhood uh, that 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 project was, was sort of constantly in the uh, on the in, in, in the background. Uh, and, and actually, he, he does write with um, the sort of I mean, I was just I read you the passage of his remembering meeting Dickens. Um, and I mean, they're extraordinary <coughs> books of both rev revelation and and concealment, but they only deal deal with him, you know, as as a yeah. a boy and an and an adolescent. Um, and I, I don't think I mean, he never wrote anything public about his adult life at all. Yeah, absolutely. <coughs> I'm just gonna, um, I was wondering, given your uh, clear and sort of admiration and interest in James, both as critic as writer, in your own writing practice, I mean. Um, Obviously, in the line of beauty, there's a direct sort of connection made to James. But does James help or hinder you? Does he sort of is he on your shoulder when you write? How does he, as far as you can tell, that would be quite a sort of <laughs> heavy shoulder. <laughs> uh, I, um, I mean that that book, the line of beauty, yes, was very much written when I was at the sort of peak of my James mania, you know, uh, and um, and when it every fact about. Henry James seemed to me to have this sort of transcendent interest. Um, I mean, I've calmed down a bit since then, but um, but I I could see that he was somehow going to be involved in the book that I was writing, and I, as you know, I, I made the, the young protagonist um, I, be, be, be writing a, a thesis about sort of James's style and so forth, uh, and to have various Jamesian preoccupations of his own. And I did. I sort of took on a Jamesian challenge in writing that, you know, quite a big social novel covering several years with a lot of characters, but writing it all from the point of view of one character. Um, and it's a fascinating thing to do, and extremely demanding. I would never do it again. Um, because you could never leave the character. You could never leave the character. And this is the, it's it, it was a sort of revelation about the, the dramatic, the scenic method actually, because what what you have to do is to keep Inventing occasions, as James calls it, with a bigger, where you bring bring people together. Uh, and in that that book was a whole series of parties, of course, which were. Um, but you have to bring the action into the cognizance of, of your central consciousness. Um, so it becomes a sort of organising principle, and you know, obviously lots of people have done it. Uh, but I did undertake that as a sort of self-imposed Jamesian task. Um, and I think I felt, you know, in, in the novels of the later 1890s, like The Awkward Age and so on, 
one of my great favourites, What Maisie Knew. J James is writing about this rather sort of seedy upper middle class uh, world, um, and um, but doing so through this sort of these very fine discriminations and um, pre presenting his people as sort of exquisitely witty and fascinating, and you only you slowly come to realise how sort of corrupt and dangerous they may be. Um, it struck me that that world was rather similar to the, the sort of moneyed, um, rather corrupt, moneyed world of the 1980s that I was writing about. So the, the, sort of the Jamesian thing seemed to have another, another there was another sort of parallel. Um, but I think beyond that, you know, I, one has to escape from the, I mean, it would be fatal to try and write like James. Um, and uh, these formulae uh, that he sort of d developed in his later life were noticeably not really followed by you know, the most interesting writers of the next generation. Um, I mean, not only Howard Sturgis, poor fellow, but you know, writers like Forster and Lawrence and so, uh, and so on were doing, doing completely different things which, which didn't um, obey, obey these rules at all. Um, so so um, you know, one, has to, one has to assert oneself. Did he have any sense, do you think, of what was coming in literature? There's he, a long, he died in 1917, didn't he? 1916. 1916. Um, there's a long, strange piece he wrote about new fiction for the TLS yes. in, um, I think, 1914, um, which reviews, amongst other things, rather very fascinatingly, um, Conrad's extraordinary novel, Chance, mm -hmm. uh, which he's... he's he, He's interested by it because of the extreme technical challenges which Conrad sets himself in. And I don't know if any of you have read Chance, but it, it takes Conrad's fascination with narrations within narrations. To, and sometimes there are paragraphs which begin with four sets of inverted commas. As yeah. Uh, and James said, you know, he has set himself the task of absolute maximum difficulty here. Uh, and the, the interest is in seeing how he carries it off. But he also reviews something by Lawrence, doesn't he, I think? Mm -hmm. um, I think that was sort of as far as he went, really. And, uh, and the outbreak of the First World War, it just sort of so completely threw him. He, I mean, he abandoned his own writing projects. He was working on two, I mean, he left the stubs of two unfinished novels when he died, but um, the war just sort of shattered his whole sense of, of the civilization on which he was, he was living. And uh, he just sort of went, he all went to pieces, actually. Mm. Yes, there's a microphone. Thank you. Uh, just to go back to George Eliot for a moment, um, you didn't talk at all about Middlemarch, and I wondered, I just don't know, did uh, he write about Middlemarch? James reviewed Middlemarch, yes. yes because um, of the obvious similarity with the more tragic uh, Isabella Archer. So I'd be curious to, yes. to know. Thank you. Um, he... Let me find quickly the. Um, he reviewed Felix Holt as well. Um, he reviewed The Spanish Gypsy, a poem at immense length. Um, it, it, it just opens with, with, with another of these Jamesian paradoxes. Middlemarch is at once one of the strongest and one of the weakest of English novels. <laughs> Um, and um, he bobs up and down all, all the way through between saying you know, um, how, how things have 
um, terribly um, over-protracted, over over-investigated. Um, they don't um, merit the... Uh, they, we don't feel the interest of the subject that we, we seem to feel that we're, we're required to feel. The dramatic current stagnates, uh, and so forth. Um, the author's rare psychological penetration is lavished upon a veritably mulish domestic flower. <laughs> there is nothing more powerfully real than these scenes in all English fiction, and certainly nothing more intelligent. Um, so, I mean, again, there's a, a really extraordinary openness of uh, undecidedness about the whole thing. I mean, I, I, George Eliot just loomed enormously for him. Um, yeah. I think there are no more questions. Um, when we were talking about what we hoped this would achieve, we agreed that the best thing it could do would be to turn one reader on to Henry James's criticism. And I think if there was one book or one thing that you could read, it would be The Hawthorne. Probably, wouldn't it? It's very, very good. The yeah. Hawthorne is absolutely fantastic. Yeah. And you, you don't really need to have read any Hawthorne, if you haven't, really, to get it. No, I think that's right. He's, it's a completely self-contained and text, and it, it yeah, it's absolutely marvellous. But we would recommend that you spend the next month, <laughs> <laughs> when you're not busy, reading Henry James's criticism. Um, Alan Hollinghurst has been uh, exigent this evening and in preparing for this, and I think you should show your appreciation of really a masterful account of James.